Welcome to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week, I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game-changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point, we've all delivered a less-than-stellar demo, been ghosted by a client or two, and sometimes, maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business, your territory, or with your team, so you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. Welcome back to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Now, I had the pleasure of sitting down with one of the co-founders of the Practice Lab, Jonathan Mahan, and we talked about all things role-playing. And um, even the word role-playing, if I think back to my earlier sales career, definitely elicits a negative experience. And so just the Practice Lab, how can we practice? And when we get into these two zones, he referred to one of them as the performance zone versus the improvement zone, what happens? And when we're performing, we're really just, we're not changing, we're, we're, we're anchoring or, or reapplying things we already know. So it's pretty much the same performance, but it's all about us. But when we can move into that improvement zone, and I love this area, is we can really slow down and we can start applying these changes, these small changes, and sometimes they're nuances, but they drive huge results. And areas he shared, you know, within the, the moments that we can isolate and we can work through and practice to focus on one thing. And so he shared, like, how can you start really focusing on active listening and just being completely present? How can you then move to being more curious when two things don't connect or, or your brain is itching to learn more? How can you tap into that curiosity? How can you be more empathetic? So all these soft skills that go undetected and, and nobody really spends time practicing on them. Those are the moments that create, in my, in my opinion, an experience that leaves the buyer wanting more because we've actually shown up as a human being and we're in the moment and our focus is on them because we're attuned to picking up for these little cues because of the practice. And I would say most people are not practicing or they're not practicing in the right way. And they're doing this box checking exercise. It shows we've done some role playing, but you know, they've done it once. Um, they might've got feedback and then they sit down and it's someone else's turn. And so even Jonathan shared that, you know, you, you feedback and you iterate, you re you allow them another chance to go back and practice and apply that feedback immediately. And when you can do that back and forth, what you're doing is you're, you're creating new neural pathways, new ways of doing things that over time become automatic. And that's what drives change. So highly, highly um, encourage you to take a listen to this. It's, uh, it's packed with both some neuroscience and brain science, uh, a lot of tactical skills that we can apply um, immediately. And even the mindset, like how can we show up and set expectations for our team that this is going to be uncomfortable. We're learning something brand new, but think about any sport, any music, in any, um, musical if you play the piano if you play the guitar you don't just show up one day and you're amazing you got to practice even pieces of a song you got to isolate uh, bars and really you know practice those those chords those triads to get better and then you put it all together and this is no different and so he he, he does a great job of laying out a framework that we can all apply irrespective of where we're at in our sales journey so take a listen let us know if uh, if you applied anything with yourself as an individual contributor or founder or with your team and, uh, and the results you yielded as a result of it. I uh, hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And uh, thanks for listening. So I'd like to welcome Jonathan Mahan to the, to the podcast and he's a co-founder of the Practice Lab. So Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Karen. This is going to be fun. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun. And I, I think it's going to be educational because this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart and both... <laughs> positive and unfortunately not not so great in my early sales years. But before we get into um, all the tactics and, and everything we're going to learn, why don't you tell us what prompted you to create with your co-founder um, a company like the Practice Lab? What were you seeing, whether it was with yourself or the industry that warranted something like this? Yeah. So it's actually interesting, both myself, and my co-founder, Maya, we were experiencing the same problem, but from like different sides 
So at the time that we got started, I was an individual contributor. I was an account executive at a company and I was getting trained and the training they were giving me was actually really good, right? I was getting trained on all the right questioning techniques, the way to talk about pricing, the way to handle objections, the way to talk about competitors, the way to you know talk about our solutions and everything was great. The problem I was running into is that I was having a really hard time in the moment under pressure on my real sales calls, even accessing any of that. It's like I'd listen to a podcast or read a book, take notes, fill my head with all these ideas around what good selling is and how I want to sell. And then I'd hop on the call. Suddenly there'd be this flood of emotions and a little bit of tension and money's on the line and there's pressure. And in that moment, my brain would kind of blank and I couldn't really access more than like 2% of what I had learned. And even that was really hard to apply. So what would I do? I would just kind of default to what I'd always done and kind of get pulled down that path that I had always gone down and handle the calls basically the way I had always handled them, despite the fact that I'd spent all the time filling my head with knowledge. So like the ratio of what I was learning to what was available to me Mm-hmm. in my sales calls was really low. And I was getting frustrated because I was like, dude, I want to be this like top seller. And I got the knowledge for it. But damn, in the moment, the execution is different. And, and May experienced the same thing. She was a sales trainer. So she was on the other end. She was the one doing the training, the opening people's eyes, right? The helping them understand. Um, and yet, more often than not, sellers who were trained by her wouldn't actually implement a whole lot of what she had trained them. So she was getting frustrated on her end about why aren't these people doing this? And I was getting frustrated on my end of why can't I do this? And both of us, interestingly enough, independently started looking outside of sales for answers. We ended up reading like a lot of the same books before we even came together in partnership. But we started looking to what other disciplines do. Like, because for a lot of other disciplines, that's not an option, right? In the military, right? (laughs) When you're going through boot camp, it's not an option at the end of a boot camp, you still do things the way you did before. No, they need to bring on real behavior change and that behavior change needs to last under pressure, right? Similarly with like, you know, college sports teams. Again, it's not an option for these high school kids who join to just keep playing the way they used to play in high school when they're in college. They've got to change their behavior. They've got to, you know, up that game even under pressure. So we started to look into what other disciplines do, professional musicians and comedians and the military and actors. And how do these people take all this theory they've learned and turn it into something they can regularly, repeatedly, routinely do, even under pressure? And the answer that arose everywhere we looked was the same. It's practice and a specific variety of practice called deliberate practice that really cuts out a lot of like the fluffy moments of more traditional practice and really hones in on those, those skill growth moments, those progress moments. So in deliberate practice, you have like a whole session beginning to end, just chock full of growth and skill development moments, right? So typically, if you're following the principles of deliberate practice, you can grow your skill, you know, 10 times as fast as if you're just showing up doing simple repetition practice. So that's kind of how we got started. And over the course of the last few years, we've just been doing a lot of tinkering and experimenting um, early on to figure out how do you take these principles that, that the athletes and musicians use and how do you bring them to salespeople and sales training and how do you make it work? Um, and it's been a really fun experience just figuring that out and even funner experience seeing it start to work, right? And seeing salespeople start to actually change their behavior during those high pressure moments that matter most and seeing that, yes, in fact, it does work just as well in sales as it works in all those other disciplines. So it's been a heck of a journey over the last, I don't know, two and a half years, whatever it's been now. That's amazing. What a cool story, Jonathan. And I mean, so many things I took, I took some notes there, but one word that stood out was access. And and I think when you think about anything, you know, like you, you're taking the ins are not the inputs is not correlating to the outputs, like you're taking it all in, you're enjoying it. But in the moment when those high stakes, the emotions kick in, we're not able to spit out all the good we learned. And, and I think because, um, the emotional, like we're also attached to the outcome, but, but I love that practice. That's the only way to to do it. And when you think about, you know, sports and music and it's almost sad that like, why, why is the bar so low to sales? Like it's the number one job out there. Most, most people are in some capacity, whether it's direct sales or not, we're all selling. Right. But yet it's the, there is no bar. (laughs) It's like, read the book. Like for me, here's your bag. Here's your territory. Let's go. And you're just like, God, that's like rogue. You're letting us go rogue. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 crazy to think about other disciplines. Just imagine if the paradigm of sales training existed in any other discipline, how laughable it would be, mm-hmm. right? Hey, yeah. hey, guys, welcome to first day of you know college soccer team. Uh, we got Lionel Messi here. He's going to talk to you for a while about how to play better <laughs> soccer. And great. Now, next game, we're gonna, all going to do better. 
Well, duh, of course that's not going to work. But people have their SKO events and hire some big sales name to come in and talk to you about how to sell better. And they actually expect people to start selling better afterwards. Like, it's crazy. And that piece you mentioned about access, you're right to hone in on that because that's huge. I don't want to go you know, nerd out on this too much, but there are physiological changes to the brain when you're in a moment of stress, pressure, and tension, such as a sales call that changes where the oxygen and blood flow in the brain goes. It changes how fast different parts of the brain can operate and function. And the parts of the brain that tend to slow down that you lose access to are those same parts of the brain where knowledge is stored, right? Whereas the parts of the brain that speed up and get all the blood flow and the oxygen are parts of the brain that have to do with habit and rituals and routines, right? And defaults. So the fact that, as I mentioned, only 2% of what I learned was available to me in the moment isn't like because I don't have enough willpower or something or because I don't care enough. Mm -hmm. It's literally the physiology of my brain is making it that way. So there's no way past that. That is the way human beings work in moments of stress and pressure we default to the most familiar the defaults. We can't access most of the knowledge that we have stored in our frontal cortex. It's just not the way the brain works. So sales training ought to reflect that truth, right? And ought to focus on building those new habits, those new deeply dug grooves so that they'll be available to, to sellers under moments of stress and pressure. Mm -hmm. And think about you know your, your why and your reason why you started, you were frustrated. But think about, you know, the sales leaders, like you're not hitting sales revenue targets or metrics. And yet some, some continue to do nothing about it and, or, you know, or throw the more button on it, which kills me. And it's like, we need the how, <laughs> we don't need more of the same thing. We need how, but even to add to that, you know, the why and the explanation behind it about physiologically, this what's actually going on and it, you're incapable of doing this. And so I think it just really solidifies the case for this needs to happen. This needs to happen. Yeah, no, otherwise you'll just keep, you know, solving the wrong problem, right? Because like traditional sales training has a place for sure, because a lot of times sellers don't actually understand what they're supposed to be doing, how they should be handling moments. They don't understand their role in the process, right? They don't understand the dynamics at play between buyers and sellers. So like there's a place for knowledge for sure. It just can't stop there, mm -hmm. right? There has to be this middle no. step of, again, rewiring the brain so that the new knowledge becomes habit. The new knowledge becomes a deeply dug groove in that brain so that under moments of stress and pressure, it's available to the sellers. And if you don't take that step, just stuffing more knowledge in the front end doesn't change the fact that none of it's available. Analogy I use sometimes is, you know, if you're, if you're having issues with your car and you're finding that the gas in your tank isn't making it to the engine where you need it to be, putting more gas in the tank doesn't solve the problem. You got to figure out why yeah. it's not making it over to the engine. So similarly, if all the knowledge in your rep's heads isn't showing up on calls, stuffing more knowledge mm -hmm. in their heads isn't going to solve the problem. You got to figure out how to get that transference to happen. And again, that has to do with, you know, rewiring the brain, forming new habits, etc. Mm -hmm. And that's a great analogy. And I think like for me, it's an indicator when someone will say, will you come in and do a one day training? And I'm like, Nope. <laughs> because it doesn't set me up for success, nor your team. If there's no reinforcement, I can motivate them, but there will be no change after. And so that just heightens to me that, you know, they're an unsophisticated buyer or they're just, they have budget and they have to use it. So I think there's an opportunity to educate people as well that says, well, what's going to happen beyond this? How can you you know, it's just like, look at the future and look at your team. They want to win. They want to be developed. So you're not also supporting them. You know, you, you might think you are because you're doing a half day or a day, but in, a, in actuality, you're not. Another red flag for me is when people say, hey, we really want our team to like learn everything from prospecting through discovery, through demoing, through negotiation <laughs> in the next 12 weeks. Okay. Like, you know, we're really behind in a lot of areas. So in the next 12 weeks, can you solve all these problems? And it's like, no. I could stuff people's head full yeah. of knowledge for 12 weeks, but again, you can't actually change behaviors. The work that we do at the practice lab is actually by most standards quite slow. Um, we'll spend three months working on just demos, but not only just demos, but like specific moments in the demo that carry a lot of impact on how much what you're sharing with them resonates with the buyer and how easily they're able to connect with, you know, and connect the dots between what you showed them in their world and why they should care and how they should put this to their boss. Like we just are zooming into specific moments and it takes three months to get meaningful behavior change across the entire team for just like a few specific moments in the demo. 
right? Which again, is glacially slow by the pace that most people want, right? They want in the next three months for all their problems to be fixed. But the reality is to really change behavior, you, you do have to slow down and you have to zoom in on like, what are the small changes we can make that'll have really big impact mm -hmm. on results? And then just focus mm -hmm. on making those small changes rather than again, trying to cover everything. Yeah. And I think it is those nuances that really do make, make the difference. But when you're, as you said, you're creating these new neural pathways, which take time, but it also allows the rep to get comfortable, like, because there's going to be that, that initial discomfort. So it's kind of like working through getting comfortable with being uncomfortable that I think when it, when the time is up, there's going to be certain parts when they get to this part of the, the sales call, like there's just, there's ease there. And it's not like it's rigid where it's like, I'm really bad. Oh, here's my good part. But you can see that the edge is starting to smooth out across them all because the confidence from those areas where you really zoomed in kind of starts overtaking the, the whole conversation. And that process, right, of going from concept to awkward, stumbly first attempt that probably doesn't go well to yeah. a decent second attempt to maybe by the time you get to the 10th attempt, it's actually pretty good. That process has to happen somewhere. So as sales leaders, you get to decide, does that process happen in real calls with real customers with mm -hmm. money on the line? And that's where they have their awkward, stumbly first attempt that doesn't go well. And it costs you a $20,000 deal because it didn't go well, right? Or do they have those stumbly, awkward moments in practice with teammates where there's no money on the line, right? So that's the other thought. Mm -hmm. The other side of this practice piece is even outside of like the brain science stuff, it's just a matter of like, if the stumbling has to happen somewhere, better it happens here than when there's actual money on the yeah. line, <laughs> you know? Because that's a very expensive yeah. way to yeah. grow skill when every time you make a mistake, you lose five figures, right? Well, I mean, it's it's not good for your prospects. They're, you're wasting their time, but even your salespeople, like they're, they're commission-based, right? So they want to make money. But I think there's got to be an element, a mindset going, you will, like, you will fail initially. Like nobody tries something of the first time in Excel. So, and, and I think the quicker you can embrace the fact, like think about anything you've tried for the first time, you're going to suck right? But you're going to work through that and then you're going to get the confidence. So it's kind of like that continuum of learning. And I think if you can set it up that you're not going to be great the first time and, and then they're like, okay, I'm not going in expecting to be Superman and I can kind of lead, check my ego as much as I can at the door. Then there's this element of vulnerability and able to try. And, and I think that that makes a difference. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. And that's actually a really, really important part of making the practice count, right? I mentioned earlier the difference between deliberate practice and maybe the more the way most people do like role plays on their team. And this is one of the big differences because, you know, early in my sales career, I would do role plays from time to time. And every single time the expectation was that this was your opportunity to prove that you could do it. Sometimes they even called it certification, proved you can do it. Other times it was just kind of the signal they were sending and how they did the practice was like, okay, John, your turn. Here's an objection. Show me what you got. Great. All right. And now you, your turn. Show me what you got. And it's like you're on, you're being tested, right? And you have to prove how good you are. You have to prove how competent you are. And that's one of the reasons most people hate role play is because that expectation, it leads for a very, very uncomfortable uh, conversation, uncomfortable moment, but it actually leads to less effective skill growth as well. Because here's the thing, when you're in that environment where you're being tested, we call this the performance zone, right? Your goal is simple. Do the very best you can do in this moment. And when you're in that zone, you don't really have an opportunity to improve. All you really do is take whatever your current best is and you just make it more permanent by doing just that. Because in that moment where your goal is simple, do the very best you can do in this moment, you're going to turn to the most tried and true, the most familiar, the thing you can count on, which is typically the thing that you always do anyways. So when you put someone in practice and the expectation is performance, prove to me how good you are, you're not giving them the chance to do things differently. You're not giving them a chance to grow their skill and become better. All you give them the chance to do is prove to you what the current best is and more deeply ingrained in their brains, whatever their current best is. Compare that to what we call the improvement zone, which is where you're in a setting where the expectation is this is going to be kind of stumbly and awkward at first. You're probably not going to do great because this is new. This is different. This is training your brain in new ways of functioning. And anytime you train your brain and do something new, it's not going to look great at first. When you give people that psychological safety and that permission, that allows them to start to slow down and to try new things and to stumble and to make mistakes and to kind of feel out something different that they're unfamiliar with. And ultimately, 
it allows them to make new choices and handle a situation differently and start the process of digging that new groove in their brain, that new alternative way of handling things. But you can only get that if you're in the improvement zone. And again, you can only be in the improvement zone if you have that psychological safety where it's okay to fail, it's expected to mess up, no one's testing you, no one's judging you, right? So that's like the, the first place most role plays go wrong is the expectation is performance, um, which again is a great way to make your current best more permanent. But that's all it's going to do. If you want to actually grow new skill, change behavior, then people need to be in the improvement zone where they have that flexibility to mess up. I love that. And that pretty much sums up <laughs> my career at the beginning, the beginning of my career. Just, it was just, you know, you had your little pitch and you kind of re you reemphasize or re-anchored it. But what, what, like even the language performance, it's just kind of like no room for error here versus improvement. It almost gives you the safe space to, to make mistakes, but try slow down and try new things. And like you said, make new choices because when you're in the performance zone, I feel like it's all about you and you're just working on your pitch and your craft, but your, your active listening and your verbal and nonverbal cues go out the door because you're just all inwardly trying to perform. Meanwhile, your prospects are giving off signs or they're doing something and you're not even aware of them. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and that's, that's another you know, piece of this too, when you're, when you're training your team, part of what you can train your team on, and I guess I should even be more clear, when you're having your team practice, part of what you can have your team practice is what they say, how they talk about their features, how they respond to objections, how they compare themselves to the competition. You can practice those things and you should practice those things. But the other thing that practice can do, if you're doing the practice well, is you can actually use practice to like rewire your reps' brains and give them skills and mental abilities that they didn't have before or maybe strengthen their skills and abilities that maybe were weak before, including skills and abilities like listening, like empathy, like curiosity. These are brain abilities, and these aren't things you can just flip a switch and say, oh, I'll just be more empathetic on this call, right? Or, hey, I'll just be more curious on this call. Can't doesn't really work that way, right? True curiosity is a pattern in the brain, right? Where the brain notices things that it didn't used to notice before and where it draws connections where it didn't used to draw connections before. And that isn't always in your conscious control. So to your point, a lot of times the most important part of the sales interaction isn't the thing the rep says. A lot of times the most important part is what the rep notices about the buyer and what the buyer, the rep picks up both in the buyer's words and what they're saying, but even what the, what the seller picks up in the buyer's body language and tone of voice, right? And then volume and all these other cues. And it's a lot to ask a salesperson's brain in the moment under pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Where they have to simultaneously be thinking of what they want to say next. They need to be watching the clock to pay attention to how much time they got left. They need to be paying attention to what the person is saying to them. They also should be paying attention to the nonverbal cues the person's giving off. They should also be paying attention to what the person isn't saying, right? Gaps in their narrative they want to explore more. They should be tuning into their own sense of curiosity to, again, make those connections and get those little itches where you're like, huh, I want to know more here, right? That's kind of a hard skill to do. Uh, but once you have that itch of curiosity, then your seller's brain also needs to find language for like a question or figure out how to direct the conversation towards that, right? So typically it's a question they ask. So they got to figure out what their question is. And then even once they know the question they want to ask, they got to deliver it with their own nonverbal cues in alignment. So the question lands well, like, there is so much a seller's brain has to do, particularly on a discovery call, but really during any selling. All of it has to be done during times of high emotion. And if you have a rep's brain that just isn't wired and doesn't have the skill of deep listening, of empathy, of reading body language, of being curious, there's not much knowledge is going to do, right? One analogy I use sometimes is that a lot of times with, with sales you know, training or sales methodologies or sales playbooks that managers give their team, it's like you're equipping them with like a really sophisticated software program to run around what great selling looks like. But then they try to run it through their processor, their brain, which just can't handle it, right? It's, it's an older, weaker processor that can't handle this like immensely complex code you just gave them for what good selling looks like. And it, you know, if crashes the processor and then the processor, when it crashes, just goes back to its default mode. So if you're going to ask your people to do really complex, difficult, mentally demanding, cognitively demanding version of selling, you've got to use practice and training to actually strengthen their brains so their brains can keep up, right? Because again, the things we ask sellers to do, 
it's a lot to do. <laughs> so many different dimensions of, again, listening and thinking and planning and responding and adjusting. And it's a very difficult mental task. And again, other professions where there's difficult mental tasks, they recognize this and they invest in upgrading their hardware, right? They invest in sharpening their mind and growing their skills. But sales seems to be this place where we like forget that good selling is actually very difficult to do. Um, and we kind of skip that skill development piece and we just say, oh, as long as you got the knowledge of what it looks like, that'll work. But for another analogy here, imagine you like learned everything that could be learned about freestyle rapping. You read every book, you watched every documentary, right? You listened to rap battles and you became a knowledge expert on freestyle rapping. But then if someone handed you a microphone in front of a, in a room full of 50 people, could you actually freestyle rap? <laughs> very different, right? Knowledge and having the wiring in your brain to do it is very different. So similarly, you can talk to people about, be curious, read the room, notice their nonverbals. But in the moment, that's actually a very hard thing for your brain to do. And if you haven't used practice to train and develop and sharpen your mind, then you're not really going to be able to implement and execute all that. So that was a very long answer. But uh, yes, you're right to point out uh, that side of the equation. It's not just about what you say, but it's about what you notice, right? And your listening and your human skills. But even human skills can be trained and practiced in the same way that you can, or in similar ways that you can practice, you know, other sales behaviors. Mm-hmm. I love that you called it human skill. So even M&M, <laughs> that's what I thought about when you were showing us. <laughs> even M&M can have, uh, you know, can, can practice when he stumbles initially. But um, when, when you painted that picture, like a lot of people, who, people who are listening now, sales leaders, and perhaps whether you're training internally or you're bringing someone in and, and solely focus on content, like that, that picture you just painted about active listening, what to think, you know, managing the time, managing your slide, all those things, the spoken, the unspoken, why do they ask? Like for me, it's never the question, what's the, why did, why did they ask it? Why aren't they asking this? Like all those things to balance. I feel that's as human, that's what we need to do. Like even when he's in the brain, when there's a disconnect there, that, that cues the curiosity to go, why is that happening? And then to just be aware that all this is happening and have the confidence and the wherewithal to say, I'm just curious, like, where is this coming? And being able to execute on it versus you can see how it would be overwhelming to someone who's who's not in tune with themselves, with the buyer, with the desired outcome, all these things, because it is, it is complex. And so what are your suggestions, Jonathan, in terms of like structuring this do you, do you frame it in different stages? Do you do one thing and then you start layering kind of left hand, right hand, both hands, just because you can see if you overload the system too much, you're going to set, they're going to fail, but it's also how can you break it down in digestible bites where they're kind of digesting that first one, getting confident and then building and building so that over time, your three months or whatever that is, it's, it's conversational tone. And they're not losing sight of them as people where they're just, you know, steamrolling over these objections and these nuances. And it's like, hang on a minute, like you just drop something huge here. Like, let me lean into that so that they're really comfortable being themselves on these calls and not these robotic closers. Yeah. Well, there's a few things in there. <laughs> Comfortable being yourselves versus a robotic closer, right? That's that's a very interesting, and that almost comes down to like the culture on the team, the expectations, the permission you give them. I think every seller, who knows where they pick it up? Maybe it's from watching movies of salespeople, or maybe it's from something else. But it feels like every seller um, has a sales voice, right? Just like I feel like most people have a customer service voice, right, that they use, and it's very different than their real voice, and. This can be really dangerous because when you are in a mindset and a mind frame where you are relaxed and you're leaning into your humanity and you're treating this as just a human to human conversation, a lot of that complexity that I mentioned earlier of all these things you have to do simultaneously in your brain of figuring out what to say next and how to say it and what to cover and listening, a lot of that stuff, the intuition can take over a little bit more and handle a lot of that workload for you. But for the intuition to take over and handle that workload for you, you have to be in a place where you, you you see this as a human to human conversation, right? You see this as um, not me selling you, me convincing you, anything like that. You see it as, hey, I'm here to help and get curious. So that shift is actually a little bit more of a mental shift um, and a perspective shift. Um, and again, that has to generally be supported by the sales leaders, right? Um, one of the most valuable things 
that one of my sales leaders did for me in the past is sometimes in our call reviews, he'd even point out to me when seller John took over Mm -hmm. and say, look, this isn't new anymore. Like I know you, I talk to you all the time. I know how you talk. In this moment, you lost track of seller John or of real John and you turned into seller John. And that awareness helped me to shift that pattern. And again, a lot of times that pattern starts in the mind. Do you see this as I'm about to hop on a sales call and I'm going to convince this person of something? Or do you see it as I'm going to have a conversation with a human being, see if I can Mm -hmm. help. If I can't, no big deal. If I can't, great. But let's just see where this takes us. When you can truly embrace that mindset, a lot of the complexity I mentioned kind of gets taken over by intuition. um, And you can do, you know, three quarters of that cognitive load unconsciously versus when you're in a sales state, much less of that intuition is happening and you have to mentally do a lot more of that work. So there's a mindset shift there. But the other piece you talked about too, of like how to bring about this change um, is really worth touching on as well, which is like this one piece at a time, this chunking it down piece, because that's another real principle of deliberate practice. When a professional football team goes into practice, they don't say, all right, folks, um, you folks over there on the left side of me, your team A, uh, folks on the right side of me, your team B, uh, go play a football game. Uh, and then the game, and then they play the whole football game through. And then they say, great work. Let's come back and do the same thing tomorrow. They wouldn't get any better, right? In order to develop skill, you do need to focus on one piece at a time. You need to be very clear going into it as to what good looks like here, right? Sometimes what good looks like is very specific. Here's the talk track to use. Other times it's a bit more nebulous. Like, hey, your response should include elements of empathy. Your response should include elements of, you know, uh, other centricness. And your response should include a thought-provoking question. It can be a little bit more nebulous. But one way or another, you got to be clear in advance what good looks like for this specific piece. Then people head in and they practice just that specific piece then they get feedback on that piece, and then they immediately get to implement that feedback in another attempt. So that's another principle of deliberate practice there, is that the feedback goes in the middle, it doesn't go at the end, right? It should be practice feedback, practice feedback, practice feedback, where each time you get feedback, you're immediately having a chance to implement it, try it on for size, see how it feels, versus more traditional role plays where you step up to the plate, you shoot your best shot, your manager gives you some feedback, you sit down, this is the next person turn, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't help grow skill. (laughs) That's a really slow way to grow skill. So it's definitely important to break it down one piece at a time and practice one piece at a time. It's important to structure the practice and environment where there's the expectation of failure. Um, And just to put some specific examples to this for any sales leaders who want to try this practice thing out, I tend to think about the chunking it down in two different ways. One version of chunking it down is chunking it down to specific moments and say, let's just work on this moment until this moment in the call is second nature. Then let's move on to the next moment. So for example, let's say you know, you're looking at a demo. One moment could be how you open the demo. Another moment could be how you tee up and set the context for some of your most important features. And you could just practice teeing up that feature, setting the context for it. Then another moment you could practice is after you've shown one of your more important features, how do you ta- how do you hand the microphone over to your buyer and how do you get them talking about what they just saw, reflecting on what they just saw, how they'd use it, what the value would be, right? That's another moment you can practice. You can just practice winding down the feature, getting your buyer talking, winding down the feature, getting your buyer talking, right? So that's how you could look at a, a demo and break it down to specific moments. And then maybe the last moment is like when you're done with the demo, how do you do that kind of like end of call wrap up, right? How do you get their buy at the end of the call? How do you set up next steps at the end of the call? That could be your, your different moments. But the other way to look at this too is even just down to skills. So when we work with folks around discovery, we don't really look at individual moments because the discovery call is very unpredictable. Outside of like how you open the call and how you wrap it up, there's not much that's predictable about a discovery call. It's the wild west in there. So that's not really a great time to use that framework of practicing one moment at a time. So with discovery calls, we focus on skills, one skill at a time. So first we'll focus on listening, right? We teach people four different types of listening and we give them a chance to practice using the four different types of listening so they can feel how they're different for them as a seller, but then they can also switch roles and experience what it's like as the speaker to be listened to at those four different levels. And that's all we focus on. We don't care anything else that happens in the interaction. We're just focusing on the listening and the four types of listening until that becomes you know, natural for reps. Then we move on to curiosity, and we're training their brains to get more curious, to notice things they didn't used to notice before, to draw connections they didn't used to draw connections to before. And we just practice curiosity. So at this point, we no longer care about the listening. We don't care about what the rep says. We don't care about any of that. We just care how curious are you? Are you noticing things you didn't used to notice? Are you getting this itch in your brain of something you really want to know, right? 
and we just practice that skill. Then we move on and we practice a skill of how to take that itch of curiosity and how to quickly turn it into a thought-provoking question that you know, allows you to be direct and get to the heart of the matter, but that doesn't like ruffle feathers and cause defensiveness, that is open-ended, that gets you know, valuable answers rather than being closed-ended, not getting much. And we teach them how to take this itch of curiosity and quickly turn it into a question. That's the next skill. Then the next skill we layer on top of is something called uh, elicitation, how to get people to share information with you without actually even asking them a question. And then we teach them those techniques and they just work on those techniques. So like by the end of it, you've got listening, you've got empathy, you've got curiosity, you've got questions, you've got how to get information without questions, but we've just layered one piece in at a time. So it might take three months to get through this, right? Compared to a traditional sales training where you sit people down for four hours and teach them all about discovery and then send them on their merry way. This is a long process, but at the end of it, people's brains are actually different than they used to be. That hardware, that processor they have can actually handle more than it used to be able to handle and do more under pressure than it used to be able to do because we layered in one piece at a time. And I'm telling you, by the end of this, it's so powerful to see reps like mm -hmm. to see reps in action, stacking all these things together of listening and empathy and curiosity and questions and elicitation and all these things. It's just beautiful to behold people actually doing this. And again, these are like these, those human skills, those soft skills that a lot of times people are like, ah, you either got it, you don't. You're either curious, you're not. You're either empathetic, you're not. But that's not the case. Those are just mm -hmm. skills that can be wired into the brain with the right kind of consistent practice. And it is just, again, transformational to watch that happening. And the other cool thing, too, is that once you rewire someone's brain, it affects every area of their life. They're suddenly more curious and empathetic when they're in one-on-ones with their manager. They're suddenly more you know, uh, uh, open-minded and better listeners when they're talking to their spouse. They suddenly are asking better questions when talking to their kids. Like We found that to be a really great seller, you need the same skills. You need to just be a really great human, right? One of our favorite slogans is the most powerful selling skills are the most powerful human skills. So it's always really cool to watch these sellers who came into our programs to work on their selling skills suddenly saying, I'm showing up as a more effective human in every area of my life now because my brain has again been rewired to be a more curious, empathetic brain. And once that's been done, again, you, know, you got the same brain when you clock out that you have during work too. So the benefits are really widespread. I can see that as, as you know, for myself, being a, a patient and an empathetic mother, because <laughs> you do want to fly off the handle. But I, I think when there's, when you can hold space, because when you think about the amount and the competing thoughts and priorities that are going in our brain, that, that also holds true in the sales training environment. But if you can just isolate and do that one thing, like that's over time, like, you know, tension under time. That, as you said, that's going to drive change. But what I love about what you just said, Jonathan, is in not just as a seller, in your life, so that you are more curious as a person, you're more empathetic as a person, and you don't revert back to the other, you know, Karen, it's just, this is who I've become. And I this fake it till you make it, but fake it until you become it. And I think people just want that instant gratification, and they're not fully prepared to go through the process. It's change management, right? But that takes time and that takes practice. And those who are too transactional and too just, I want the prize, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to see the, the, the long-term change that those who are willing and invested to commit to the overall process will. Well, I think that, I mean, that's a general human tendency, but I feel like it's a particular, um, commonality just in the sales industry. I think one of the biggest yeah. problems in the sales industry is short-sightedness and um, yeah. short-term focus, right? Because it is very mm -hmm. hard to get, you know, sales leadership and go up. It's hard to get your CFO and your CEO engaged to like invest in growing these skills that might take three months before they see anything, maybe six months mm -hmm. before, you know, real metrics are impacted when they could just like slap a spiff on new meetings and try to pump up this quarter's numbers. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at all the ills of the sales industry, I think many of them trace down to this short term focus, right? This focus on let's just worry about hitting this quarter's numbers and not invest in next year's yeah. numbers, right? Because think about it what sales manager is ever talking to their team about what they're going to do to make sure Q2 of next year looks good? No, it's about how are you going to close mm -hmm. this quarter and do you have enough pipeline built up that we're not going to be totally screwed over next quarter? But no one thinks past mm -hmm. this quarter and the next. And a lot of times, again, this, yeah. this focus on skill development is more of a you know long-term focus. But even to that point, Jonathan, like think about how many sales leaders and CFOs you're talking to aren't practicing this as well. So it's that top-down mentality of, well, this is the way it's going to be. It's that, that instant 
um, just what's right in front of us. Like put, we're putting out fires and it's like, well, hang on a minute. We're going to always be putting out fires if we don't stop and change our approach here. So I think it really does start with the director of sales or the manager or the VP, whatever your reporting structure is, and just saying, hey, I'm willing to put in um, time, um, vulnerability, discomfort, and I'm going to go through it too so that, you know, they can support you. But it's like showing them what good looks like from the top as well is critical. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely agree on that. No, and oftentimes that isn't happening. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing you mentioned as you were saying um, the different stages of the training, you mentioned the, you use the word moments. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like that's just stood out for me. Is there some science behind using that or, or where did that, because it just felt very real life and, and you took away this sales performance environment. It was like, it's a moment in time. And it was just, there's a softness to it that I feel I feel there's intentionality behind it, but maybe not. Do you want to talk to us about where, why, why you called it that or why you're calling it that? Yeah. So because deliberate practice involves breaking it down into pieces and because changing behavior takes a long time, you really can't afford to apply the tool of deliberate practice to every single moment of the call. It would take you two years to practice a demo, right? <laughs> and you know, while I just advocated for slowing down, that's a bit too slow for most teams. <laughs> so what you need to do is hone in on the specific moments that carry like an outsized amount of weight on the out outcome of the call, right? If you can look at an hour long call and figure out the two minutes here, the one minute here, the two minutes here, the one minute here, those are the moments that made the biggest difference in how that call went. You can apply deliberate practice to just those moments and improving how you work those moments. Leave the rest of the call in touch. Just focus on those moments, right? So for a lot of teams, those moments are things like how you respond to the question. So how do you compare to your competitor? Right, that moment carries a carries a pretty significant impact on that sales cycle compared to you know many of the other moments where you're just like talking about random feature here, there, and the other thing. Uh, those moments that I highlighted earlier, I think, are really, really powerful moments, and that is how you prime a buyer's mind before talking about a feature to make sure when they see the feature, they get it and it resonates with them. Mm -hmm. And then after you've mm -hmm. shown them the feature, how you help them process what they just saw and connect it back to their world, figure out how they'd use it, when they'd use it, figure out what the benefits would be, figure out what strategic level priorities this connects to, right? Figure out who in their team would be most excited or who in their leadership staff would be most excited that this problem is going away. Like helping them process what they just saw and map it back to their world is massively, massively, massively important. And that's a small individual moment. Sometimes one or two questions is all it takes to really accomplish what you want to accomplish in that moment. But it carries a ton of weight. I would argue that taking one minute after sharing a feature to help them process what they saw and connect it back to their world probably has more impact on win rates than everything you said during the five-minute period when you were describing the feature, right? Mm -hmm. So that could be a moment you hone in on. Similarly, you know, the moment of opening a call sets the tone for the rest of it. How you end the call makes a difference. So it's just about saying, okay, we can't practice everything because again, behavior change is a slow process. We can't change absolutely everything about their demos. So let's identify the 20% of the moments that carry 80% of the impact on the outcome and just practice those pieces. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that Pareto would apply there because like you said, like and I see it so often after they share the, the feature, <laughs> they move on to the next one. And you're like, hang on, they're not going to connect the dots. You got to connect the dots for them. And they're just, and that's where there's that script. I think there's left brain, right brain, and they're going into that structured process. But it's like, hang on a minute, just pause in the moment and help them connect the dots. And I think when you had mentioned um, when you're doing role playing, there's an opportunity for the salesperson to play the buyer and the seller. I think for me, that's very important because we don't, rem we remember the way in which somebody made us feel. And so if we're not being invited to share our feedback, to comment after someone's sh shared something, if they didn't fully uncover a challenge and elicit some emotion, like I'm not going on the journey with you because in my eyes, I don't have a problem. And so I think when you can feel that firsthand or not feel it because of what your partner's doing to you. You realize, okay, I, I, for me, the awareness is heightened that, okay, I need to be doing this because I didn't feel it. Therefore, you know, it's probably the, true that my prospects aren't feeling it as well. Yeah. No, having, having people switch roles and play the role of the buyer is huge. Um, a lot of the work that we do focuses on practicing questions, right? And that's a big central part of it. So when you can feel the impact that some questions have over the others, 
your brain mm-hmm. remembers that. It remembers what questions felt really good, made you feel seen and heard and understood and almost created this involuntary response of like opening up and gushing an answer out versus what questions that you were asked that made you feel, ew, defensive, walls up. Why are you asking me that? Right. And that's, of course, one of the hardest things in sales to ask questions that like get to the heart of the matter. They're very direct, that uncover pain and needs, but that don't sound salesy and authentic or manipulative. That's really freaking hard. And one of the best ways to practice that is to experience it from both sides. Experience asking the questions, mm-hmm. what that feels like, and then experience receiving the questions. And a lot of times you get a lot more clarity when you're receiving them as to what feels salesy and authentic versus what feels, you know, like it's driven by curiosity and a sincere desire to help. So yes, absolutely. Having folks in both both seats really helps accelerate the learning for sure. Mm-hmm. And what's the balance, Jonathan, between practice and then coming across so practice that there's an element of you know, when the, the laugh is just at that right moment and it's like, this is the hundredth time you've had that. And I feel like the sincerity and, and it's no longer genuine, but someone, there's like a sleekness to them. And I just, for me, I can see through that. So where's the fine line being still human and still, you know, practicing those questions, but not to the point where you're like, an actor and it's like, I got this. Now I'm going to hone into this. And, you know, it's just, it's so contrived that you, you feel like, I know what you're trying to do with me here and I'm not going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, a really good question to ask. Um, and I would say that depends on what you're practicing. And I might even suggest that the kind of practicing that you have in mind when you ask that question could best be described as rehearsal, right? Where it's like, when this happens, here's how I'm going to respond. And let me yeah. practice my response over and over again. Right. And that is a concern to be dealt with when you're in that moment. Um, For example, if there's a really common objection that you hear, it might actually be Mm -hmm. good to use rehearsal and have people practice a good response to that objection over and over again, which means there's a downside of "Eh, it might sound insincere. In that situation, one of the best ways to deal with that is to not give people a specific response, but rather give them a rough framework and let them authentically find words for that framework fresh each time. Right. So when we teach objection handling, we don't tell people what to say. We tell them, make sure it includes these three beats. And then we give them ample opportunity to practice hearing the objection and spitting up a three-beat response that follows the pattern. But every time they do it, it's a fresh set of words that they use for it. So that's one way to deal with it. Step away from scripts and instead embrace frameworks. But the other piece is kind of what we talked about earlier. Don't even have them practice a specific response. Just have them practice their brain abilities. And what's really cool here, Karen, is that you can strengthen your brain listening, empathy, coming up with thought-provoking questions on the fly, right? Things like that. You can strengthen your brain's ability outside the context of selling. So a lot of times what we'll do in the practice lab is we'll include some role plays for sure, but we'll include just as many exercises where no one's pretend to be a seller. No one's pretend to be a buyer. We just put two human beings in a room together. We have them have a conversation following certain you know, guidelines, and we give the s- seller the opportunity to practice using listening skills, practice curiosity, practice reading body language in a real human to human conversation. Because again, we're just focused on, we want to strengthen this hardware. We want this brain to be better at picking up on nonverbal cues. So you don't have to be in a sales conversation to practice that. You don't have to be you know, selling, pretending to sell any of it. You can just do human to human interactions, practice the foundational skills. And once you have a brain that is authentically better at empathy, intuiting people's emotional state, reading body language, you're just going to be better on a sales call. And nothing about it feels fake or inauthentic because nothing about it mm-hmm. is fake or inauthentic. It's actually the most authentic thing ever. You actually have a mm-hmm. brain that's better at this stuff than it used to be. So that's the other way to deal with it is just focus on foundational brain abilities and trust that if your reps are authentically better listeners, they're going to end up being better on their sales calls. But again, nothing's rehearsed um, in that situation. Mm-hmm. It's really we're focused on core brain abilities. I love that. And and I think that honestly is a big piece that's missed because I just see them get into that. The I, I can see the voice shift and the tone change. And I just think if you remove the title, the structure, and just be like, you know, have parameters, but this is what you're talking about, that probably they are going to uncover something. There is going to be some impact and they're somehow going to end up in a solution where they're moving forward to do something. That is a sales call, but removing the title, because once you have the title, people's back go up and then they start getting that fight or flight and they speed up and, and they lose sight of what's innate to them. We're all good. We're decent listeners for the most part. Right. And, and we just lose sight of all that. And I think that's a really great activity. What I would say is any sales leaders listening, like do that with your team where you're just 
letting them practice questions or something, but you're not necessarily calling it a role play because it's some of these are trigger words, right? A role play rehearsal practice, whatever it is. And then people that are reluctant to do it, like they're going to have a panic attack. And it's just like set the stage that like we're going to we're going to ask questions, whatever you want to call it invites people to sit back, relax, and just really get into the their own um, foundations of what makes them human. Yeah. No, I think that's very, <laughs> very, very good advice. A lot of times we use the word practice, right, rather than role play. Um, although I will say that there's multiple forms of practice. Role play is only one form of practice, right? So the practice lab, we use four different types of practice because we found different forms of practice tend to lend themselves really well to different types of skills. Um, so role play is a really good one to use for those more predictable moments. For example, a common objection. Role play is a great tool to use. I'm going to say, we need to push this back six months. And you're going to practice a response that hits these three beats, right? That's a good way to use role mm -hmm. play. But for something like a discovery call, role play is actually pretty terrible for that because I've never met a human being ever who could behave in a role play the same way a real buyer behaves on a real call. Right. Um, so when you role play discovery, it's almost like you're in a flight simulator, but the rules of gravity and the density of air are a little different. So you could learn how to work that plane in the flight simulator perfectly, but then you get in a real plane and shit, it doesn't handle the same way. And, you know, you crash it. So similarly, in a role play, you can learn how to like, you know, tie your practice partner into knots and do all sorts of stuff and uncover their pains and just be perfect. And then you get in front of a real buyer. They don't behave the same way and you fall apart. So role play mm -hmm. is great for more predictable moments, but for those more nuanced moments, such as discovery calls, such as maybe negotiation, right? Um, you really can't use role play all that effectively. It has a place. It can kind of like start the process of helping people to change their habits, but ultimately to really make the progress you want, you've got to use other forms of practice. So we use a form of practice called skills practice, which again is what I mentioned earlier, where you don't actually role play. You put people in real human to human conversations. To your point, you take the role of seller and the role of buyer away and you say, you're just two human beings, practice your curiosity. And again, you give us some guidelines there, mm -hmm. but you know, you, you take the, the sales element away and it's just a human human conversation. That's one form of practice you can use. We also have a different form of practice that actually leverages like recordings of real sales calls from the team to train their brain and give their brain the opportunity to notice things they didn't used to notice and to make choices about how to respond to different stimuli. But of course, because it's a recording of a real call, you don't have that, is it realistic problem? Because of course it's realistic, it's actually real. And you just use that as a way to, again, give the brain a chance to practice thinking differently, to practice noticing things it didn't used to notice, to practice picking up on cues and intuiting emotions that it used to miss. So there's, again, a lot, a lot to practice beyond just role play. Um, but yes, role play has a place to play and you might want to call it something else if your team has an allergic reaction to the word, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, role-playing, skills development, the recordings. Is there a fourth one? Yeah. A fourth one we call word practice. And this is actually a very simple form of practice where you don't even need a partner, really. You just want to make sure that when a certain moment comes up, that you're able to say what you need to say smoothly and confidently. So like practicing the opening of a call might be a time for word practice. You don't need a practice partner for that. You can just practice in the mirror with that piece. Or even like answering mm -hmm. the question, so what's your pricing? you could probably practice your response to what's our pricing in the mirror, right? Or your elevator pitch, right? You can use word practice. So that's one of the more limited forms of practice. But for those specific moments where it's like super predictable, you can just practice on your own. You don't even need a partner for that. And we call that word practice um, versus the, the, the role playing an objection or something like that. You do need a practice partner to bounce off of, to feed you prompts, to feed you cues, to allow you a chance to react to what they're saying, to ask deeper questions, right? You need a practice partner for that. So we call that situation practice. Um, and that is kind of the one that mm -hmm. I described as role play earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, you've, you've opened your eyes, Jonathan, to... I guess the brain science behind it and what actually goes on and what we are capable of doing, you know, as humans, but also the different kinds of practice and um, just creating psychological safety, I think, for the team to A, be okay to fail um, and to really slow down and try things new, try things on that are new so that we can create those new neural pathways that, you know, over time will become automated and less uncomfortable but I think just moving away from that performance and just, you know, basically producing more of the same. And it's it's all about us, I feel. And so what what are two to three things if, if sales leaders now are, are doing nothing and they're like, okay, this sounds great. You know, I'm overwhelmed because I realize, wow, the light is shining on, 
how much work we need. But is there two to three things that they could start doing just to kind of just little things that would start moving the needle in the right direction? Yeah, I got three ideas. So one is pick a single moment in your whole buyer's journey, your whole sales process that you know carries a lot of weight and that you know your team doesn't handle too well. This could be how they respond to common objections. This could be how they talk about competition. This could be how they answer the pricing question on the first call, right? But just pick one moment that you know the team doesn't handle well. Between your own knowledge and maybe consulting your top performers, figure out what good looks like in that area. And then just have your team do some good old-fashioned role-playing. Explain to them in advance that this isn't a test. This isn't certification. This is just a chance to get better. Teach them in advance what good looks like put them in breakout rooms with a partner and have them just role play that individual moment where one person feeds up the objection or feeds up the question. And then the seller has a chance to respond using the framework of what good looks like that you provided. And again, frameworks are better than scripts here. Okay. So that's one thing you can do really simple role play. Just pick one thing and just see how it goes. Um, second thing you could do is that you could actually just hire an improv class for your team. Have your team go through an improv class. That is one of those forms of practice that has nothing to do with sales, but it strengthens the brain. It makes the brain better at handling emotion, makes the brain better at reading the situation, makes the brain better at thinking quickly on the fly, right? Makes reps better at leaning in and trusting themselves rather than going into panic mode. So have your sales team take an improv class. They'll be better on cold calls. They'll be better on discovery calls. They'll be better with objections. They'll be better everywhere if they take an improv class because, again, you're strengthening that brain they have. And then the third thing is when you're doing call reviews, don't just look back on what happened before. But actually ask the rep, okay, in this moment, do you hear what the buyer just said? What would you say next? And you could even, to make it probably even more effective, use other people's calls because you know they might remember what they did in the real call um, or maybe dig up a call from like a year ago. But either way, the, the way most call reviews are done, it's all about like, let's play the tape and let's reflect back on once we saw. And it's an intellectual exercise. It's an understanding exercise, but it's not really a chance to grow new skill. It's more a chance to grow awareness. So to use call reviews to grow skill, you do the opposite. You pause the tape and you look forward and say, what next? Notice here, we're 16 minutes into the call. Think of what the buyers told you already. Think of what's the most important information to know. What are some of the three pieces of information you want to get before you leave this call? If you were actually the seller in this call. Great. What are some of the questions you could ask to get at those pieces of information? Or, hey, let's pause. What did you just notice about the buyer's response? Now, what are you authentically curious to know more about? So it's this shift mm -hmm. of pausing the tape and looking back. Instead, now we're doing is we're pausing the tape and we're looking forward. And again, that's kind of the root of that mental practice that I described that we do um, with teams, where again, we use a real call as an opportunity to grow new skill. And that's essentially what we're doing there. So simple change. Don't look backwards when you're doing call reviews. Look forwards to what comes next and make your rep's brain go through the process of making decisions and deciding what they'll say next. Those three things will be a good first step down the path of practice. Mm -hmm. Those are great, great topics. Thank you for that. And I love the last one because I think in the call reviews, that's what they do. And especially if it, if the rep didn't handle it well, you're just reinforcing and making them feel bad when it's too late, right? That's a, a that moment has passed. But I love the point that it's like, even if, if the call took place three months ago, they've learned some things since then, what would they do differently now? So it's giving them an opportunity to show their, their learnings. And just quick story, sometimes when I am listening to a podcast and then mine will come on next, <laughs> and someone tells something and it's been a long time someone's telling a story and I'm like Karen please I hope you ask that question next because it was so you know like it, they tee up a big thing but it was like a year ago and then and then I'm like oh thank god I asked it because in the moment like I I'm guilty of this too right you're just you're thinking about the next one or you're 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 perhaps slicing what they just shared in one angle but you didn't get the other and so I'm like, I hope you ask that. And then it continues. I'm like, thank God. <laughs> Sometimes I don't. <laughs> hey, I'm a, I'm a work in progress too. But um, so I love that. And just giving them the chance to say, what would you do differently and why? And even like what, like for me, I pause the tape and I say, look, what's going, like, what's going on here? And you see the customer, that their, their body language is changing. They're checking out. And it could be, you know, you have to re-engage them. This is 30 minutes. This is 45 minutes. Energy's drop. What are you going to do differently now? So I think when you do watch the tape, it's so valuable. It's unfortunate that it's already happened. <laughs> so the opportunity for change is usually in the next one. But anyway, three very um, tactical and tangible ways to engage your team to, to help uh, upskill them. So thank you for sharing those. Um, Jonathan, if people want to learn more about you, connect with you, engage with the Practice Lab, what is the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for asking. So I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, the link to my profile, I imagine, will show up in the show notes. Um, or you can just look for Jonathan mm-hmm. Mahan. There's a handful of us out there, but only one Jonathan Mahan who runs the practice lab. <laughs> so uh, you can find us on LinkedIn. Our website is thepracticelab.co. Um, and if you're someone who's been listening to this and this whole, like, you know, human-focused approach to selling has been resonating and this whole focus on skill development, right, and practice has been resonating. We actually put something together um, for your listeners, Karen, to help them kind of test the waters here. So um, May and I put together a sort of practice-in-a-box digital kit that you can use to actually run a deliberate practice session with your team where there's, like, no work needed for you. It's all done for you. You just got to open it up and run it with the team. And what they're going to be practicing is a specific framework to respond to objections. It's a very human-centric approach, and it's this three-step framework that allows sellers to start the process of lowering the buyer's defenses, of opening their mind up to new ideas, and ultimately ensuring that the deal doesn't die right there, that it stays alive long enough for you to work out a solution of how to move past the objection. But it follows all the principles of deliberate practice that we mentioned earlier. It's already honed in to the right moment. It already gives you the framework. It already does all the work for you. So if you want your team to experience this style of practice, just email us, hello at thepracticelab.co. Let us know you listened to the episode and we're happy to send that digital blueprint to you so you can actually run this practice session with your team without it being any extra work on your end. Again, it's all sitting there ready to go waiting for you. So hello at thepracticelab.co and we'll send you that digital kit. Awesome. And unpack unpack your gift to greatness. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jonathan. That's been great. Um, I'm always learning as well. So I appreciate this. This is up in, in my wheelhouse of just human to human and and really just being okay in the moment to check in with yourself and slow things down and really heighten your awareness as to why are you doing things? Why are they doing things to get that context for, for change? Otherwise, we sit in the moment and, you know, we're performing, but we're not, we're not changing. And I think the, the goal of, of us as sellers is to change ourselves and to change our buyers. So I think you've done an amazing job of just bringing enough brain science into it without overwhelming people that there is an appetite for, yes, I want to, I want to move forward. And I do want to create a better experience. So thank you for your time and your knowledge and sharing all this with uh, our audience. I know uh, those who apply it will, uh, will see the changes. Yeah. 100%. Well, thanks for having me on Karen. It's been great. My, my pleasure. Okay. Thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next time.